This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Roger sits down with John Katzmedidis, who is the CEO of Red Apple Group, former candidate for New York City mayor and host of the Katz Roundtable radio show. They discuss Mr. Katzmedidis's rags to riches story as the child of Greek immigrants. His new book that outlines this story entitled, How Far Do You Want to Go? Lessons from a Common Sense Billionaire, what the American dream means for him and future generations of Americans, and his meeting with President Ronald Reagan in the White House. John Katzmedidis, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me, and uh, uh, I am proud to be associated with the Reagan name. Well, that, that's wonderful, and we're going to talk about your association with Ronald Reagan and, and really your remarkable uh, career and, and life, mostly, almost exclusively in New York City. You recently uh, wrote about your life and how far do you want to go? Lessons from a common sense billionaire, really fun read for all our viewers and listeners. Now you're known uh, to many as the founder of what's become the Red Apple Group, a conglomerate with interest in media, entertainment, uh, baseball, just to name a few things. Uh, you also host a radio show called the, the Cats Roundtable. But today we're going to speak about mostly uh, your life story as expressed through this book. One of the elements of this book that I thought maybe perhaps is a place to begin is throughout is this notion of the American dream and how your story and your life story is, is truly a, a reflection of that dream. Maybe just take a minute to talk about your story and, and why it's emblematic of what we think of as the American dream. Well, my two grandfathers came from uh, the other side uh, in both of them in 1913. My mother was born in Constantinople, which is now called Istanbul. And uh, my, my her father, uh, the Greeks were chased out of uh, Constantinople or Istanbul uh, by the Turkish Empire or the Ottoman Empire. Uh, and uh, he came to America in, in 1913. My mother was born in Constantinople in 1911. My father was uh, born on the island of Nisidos, N-I-S-Y-R-O-S, one of the Dodecanese Islands, the 12 islands along the Turkish coast. And at that time, it was part of Italy. Hmm. And it remained uh, part of Italy uh, until 1947 after World War II, 1948. Uh, the joke I tell is uh, when I was conceived, I was <laughs> conceived as an Italian, but when I was born, I was born as a Greek. Because the British, <laughs> they controlled things in, in those days. And the British said to the Italians, you know, you guys were on the wrong side. So we're going to take those islands away from you. And we're going to give them to uh, back to Greece. And so, uh, uh, but I am a member of the Columbus Club and I am 28% Italian. So I don't <laughs> know. Uh, but then we came to America and um, it, it was. Um, so you, you, you couldn't be president of the United States because. You arrived here just a little too late. I, my father, uh, six months too late. Otherwise, I could have run for president. Instead, <laughs> I ran for mayor, but I made a few mistakes there. So I well, we'll, we'll get we'll get to that in a little bit. A lifelong uh, city, New York City resident, uh, and we'll also talk about though you didn't run for president, but you spent a lot of time with presidents. We'll get to that as well. Now, you of course. Um, 
talk about being a common sense billionaire. You didn't quite graduate New York University, went out and discovered you had a real knack for business. Just take a minute to capture this idea. It's, it, it comes throughout your book of what it, of this notion of common sense. So much of what you seem to emphasize and the end of the book, you have great, you know, a list of uh, almost 16 um, keys to success, which are also feel, you know, very common sense oriented. Why is that kind of the point of emphasis as you reflect of your accomplishments, particularly in your, in your business life? Because when it comes through life, uh, you're going to make in life, you end up so many forks in the road. You sometimes, in deciding on what you do in those forks in the road, you're either going to zig left or zig right. And based on what you do in those forks in the road, you're either going to success, succeed or fail. Uh, and uh, uh, it, it, it was quite an adventure. Uh, you know, I went to uh, uh, my parents when they got, we, we lived in Harlem. And when uh, I never learned any English. So when I had to go to kindergarten, I didn't speak English. I only, my parents would only speak uh, Greek or Italian at the house. And, and, and the fact is, you know how I learned to, to, to speak English? I had a five inch Emerson, Emerson television set. It was about that much. <laughs> and you know, kids when they're four years old, five years old, they pick up English, they pick up languages really fast. But that's, you know, my vocabulary was not great, but I did pick up some English. So I did speak some English going to kindergarten. So we grew up in Harlem. My father was a busboy. He worked for Longchamp's restaurants. Jan Mitchell owned them. And Longchamp's restaurants, famous restaurants in New York, along with he also owned Luchow's, the famous yeah. Luchow's. And um, my father worked seven days a week. But, you know, it, it, when my father came over from the other side, his two brothers had to sign on a dotted line that if he didn't pay his bills, they would go to his two brothers to pay for it. Mm. A little bit different than what's going on today, isn't it? Uh, quite different uh, in terms of how we approach uh, immigration, no doubt. A great story in your book, how uh, you have this moment where you decide to take your father to Ellis Island. You want to have a deeper understanding of his arrival and uh, learn that he didn't come over via Ellison. Tell us about that story. And Oh, uh, that's a funny story. <laughs> uh, I didn't realize it because I never thought about it. Uh, Bill Fugazi was chairman of the Ellis Island Foundation, a uh, good friend of the uh, President Reagan's at that time, and, and Bob Hope, a lot of West Coast guys. And uh, I was vice chairman of the Ellis Island Foundation. So we had an annual... Uh, uh, dinner where we honored immigrants. So I decided to take my father with me one day and we're at Ellis Island and we're walking around. I said, pop, pop, you recognize anything? <laughs> and he, he, was, he was just grown. He's like, mm, yeah. I, I said, pop, pop, look, look over here. You recognize anything? He groaned. He says to me, then he says to me, leave me alone. I came to Idlewild Airport. Which, of course, was Kennedy Airport. Later, later, Kennedy, Kennedy Airport. Kennedy Airport. And, <laughs> uh, you know, I didn't realize, but when he came in 1949, I think uh, Ellis Island was probably closed already. Right. And that's where he came through. 
And uh, it, it became like, I, I got a cold chill on my face. I said, oh my God, I knew, all these years I didn't realize. But did he inculcate you, within you, the drive to work, uh, the drive for success, where, you know, your focus on the American dream? You mentioned growing up in Harlem, father working seven days a week. I mean, my mother did you have a sense that you could, educated. go ahead. My mother was a very educated lady, lady from Constantinople. You know, my, uh, her grandfather was a member of the, was the chancellor of the patriarchy. The patriarchy and the Vatican stand on equal ground in Christianity. So she got jilted. There's a Greek book on that. My mother's book was number one in Greek, in Europe. And we might come out with a, uh, a, a come out with it later on. <coughs> Excuse me. And, and she got jilted by somebody that they sent to get educated in Athens and come back and marry her. And when my father got fired by the Italian government, my father was a lighthouse keeper for the Italian government, 17 years by himself on this lighthouse, a piece of stone. Wow. Only him and a few goats. <laughs> And, and he went back to his island and he wanted to have his family, a family. Well, my mother couldn't get married, got jilted. Yeah. Her brothers couldn't get married because under tradition, tradition, not law, that the brothers couldn't get married unless the, the sister was, sister was married. married. So my it's mother an amazing story. You profile the whole thing, but, but there they are. And then he comes to the United States and brings her along and, and they find themselves in Harlem. That's it. And my father worked as a busboy, never made more than $100 a week. And he worked seven days a week because on weekends, since he, because he was a busboy, he couldn't speak English. <clears throat> on weekends, he'd go to Astoria, Long Island, where the Italian restaurants are, and worked as a waiter Saturdays and Sundays because he spoke Italian. Did you ever doubt that you'd have the opportunity what you enjoyed through your lifetime, the, 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 the American dream that we're referencing. I never thought about it. I remember watching my five inch television set and watching that, what was the name of that, uh, uh, some of those shows, Burke's Law, hmm. where that detective had a Rolls Royce. I said, I wish I would have a Rolls Royce someday. <laughs> and, you yeah. know, kids, you grow dreams. And so I was a dreamer. Let me read you this poll. In 2022, a YouGov poll revealed that 43% of U.S. citizens believe the American dream exists. 35% do not. 23% say they are unsure of it. Those under 30 are least likely to say it exists. What are they getting wrong? What is it? What are they watching on their? It's not an old TV on a you know that small screen. Now they're on their Apple and and Google devices. What what are they not seeing that you well, saw? If, if that's the statistics today. Uh, because of what's happening in America and what's happened in the last 10 years, I am concerned. I'm concerned about our education system. I'm concerned uh, that if we don't fix our education system and teach these kids correctly, then we're going to lose. I think we're number like 58 in the world in education. And we spend a zillion dollars and we have to fix our education system. Uh, I'm not against unions. I mean, look, I, I, I'm very close to what Ronald Reagan did. He was a Democrat. I was a Democrat at one point. 
He was a Democrat. He was a, a union leader. I was a union member. And and it's you know what it's about? Worrying about our kids for tomorrow. Mm. <clears throat> and if our kids do if our kids don't grow up right, they don't get the proper education, America's gonna lose someplace. Well, education is a piece of it, no doubt. Good point, but there's also just the feeling there's opportunity. I mean, I'm thinking about your story. I'd love to get your reaction to this. Here you are, you're, you're in the grocery store business, okay? If you go to some venture capitalist today and you say, okay, I want to build a grocery store empire in New York City, they probably look at you like you're crazy. Like you can't, there's no way you can do that, right? And you, here you are, you built up an empire because you, whether it was common sense, a knack in business, genius, call it whatever you want, you figured out a way to do something in the world of supermarkets in New York City that before you did, no one else thought was possible. I started with nothing. I was working uh, for a friend, a cousin, a big brother, whatever we want to call Tony. Uh, and uh, an opportunity came along where he was fighting with his uncle, a relative. And he said to me in my senior year, he says to me, take my half of the store and you owe me $10,000, you pay me 1000 a month whenever you can pay me. <laughs> I didn't know if I could pay him at all, but him and his uncle used to fight all the time. Me and his uncle, we never fought one day because I'm not a, you know, and, and you know what the lesson is there? Part, if partners are making money, they never fight. <laughs> And we, 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 I, I turned the store around. We were making money. And, you know, at that time, graduates as electrical engineers uh, from NYU were making $228, $248 a week in salary. I ended up, uh, uh, because I was, I was working 100 hours a week, uh, I was making $1,000 a week. So <clears throat> my parents got upset because I was eight credits short of graduating. And I remember the course I didn't do well in, calculus. <laughs> I remember looking at that blackboard, looking at those calculus equations, I go, ah, I gotta solve that, those equations. How do I make a living solving those equations? <laughs> so I was eight credits short from graduating. I worked at the store, I became successful. In the first 10 years in the supermarket business, <clears throat> in the first 10 years, we uh, we built it up to 10 stores and by the age of 23 24 i was making a million dollars a year when a million dollars was worth a million dollars was that building it out to 10 stores at what point i didn't get this in the book were you like hey i could scale this and that may not have been the word you use that's a fancy you know uh word you see in, in, in the wall street journal but the idea that you're saying what i'm doing here in this one store I could replicate, I could build this out. When, when did that kind of, tell us that moment where you're like, hey, we, we can go beyond the, the, the immediate footprint of your half I interest. Think, I didn't think of it that way. You know, I opened up one store. It cost me like $50,000 to open up the store. I borrowed the money from my suppliers. I had no bank credits. I had, I, I was not a finance graduate. I was not a, I didn't know anything about banking. I was an engineer. Uh, my father was a busboy. So I borrowed money from my suppliers. And my suppliers, when I did more business, they did more business. Uh, my lawyer, 
His name was Sam Stein. He was like, <coughs> I, I love the guy. It's the, the firm of Stein, Rosen, and Ornstein. And his brother, Lou Stein. They sound Greek. Yes, absolutely. You need a good <laughs> Jewish lawyer. Uh, and especially in New York. And, and, and his brother, Lou Stein, was chairman of Food Fair. And Sam Stein owned a wholesale grocery company. Besides, so every time I wanted to build another store, I, I said, Mr. Stein, I want to open up another store. He'd call his controller and say, give John more credit. Give him the money to open up the next store. Amazing. And that's how we built it. So uh, I, yeah, I we could talk there. about we could I talk about Red Alpha Group the whole time, but we'd miss out on the things you did outside of your day-to-day -day life. I want to enter the world of the presidency and your relationship with presidents, but first you have to take us through how you entered the world of aerospace and flying. Tell us ah. how, how how that came in. It's a fascinating story and became a business as well that really dominated uh, your time and attention uh, in the eighties. I wanted, I always wanted to fly. I used to watch it on television. Remember that five inch Emerson TV? Yeah. <laughs> and I wanted to go to the Air Force Academy, but um, I ended up getting a nomination for West Point. And my mother cried, my father yelled, you're our only son. So I didn't go to West Point. Uh, I went to NYU Uptown Campus, joined ROTC, and 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 I got all the pies. You know, don't forget Uptown NYU Students for Democratic Society. I got all the pies thrown at me all the time, mm -hmm. and and um, that's how I got to New York University. Uh, that's uh, and uh, when I made a few extra bucks uh, when I was about 27, 28, 29 years old. Uh, I started, I bought an airplane and started taking airplane lessons. And I bought my first jet, a Citation, a Citation jet from Roy Disney. Roy Disney. Yes, I remember the call letters, 44RD, 44 Romeo Delta, Roy <laughs> Disney. And that was the same time Atlantic City opened up. So I said to my pilot, I said, you know, it's expensive running this airplane. You know, I, I'm a deal maker. And you take a deal maker, you put him in a, into a situation, he'll always make a deal. So we go down to Atlantic City. I said, look, you're flying in, you're, you're driving in people from Philadelphia, New York, in limousines, and and you're limited to that area. I'm the one that gave him the idea. Why don't we fly him in? Use my airplane. It'll cost you $5,000 to to fly him in. You can fly him in from Boston, uh, Massachusetts, uh, uh, any place, 500, 600, 700 mile radius. They come in, they lose $20,000, have dinner, and then we fly him home. <laughs> and we built that company up. It was called United Jet Fleet. We built it up to 48 corporate jets, of which I used to fly all of them, not on passenger flights because I, I just enjoy flying. Uh, and uh, we ended up selling it to Santuli from Goldman Sachs that ended up turning that company into NetJets. And then... So NetJets started with you, flying yes. people into and then Atlantic City. They sold it to Warren Buffett, and my pilot, Jim Jacobs, ended up running NetJets 
800 corporate jets. Amazing story. But that wasn't it. Then you went on and, and, and continued in the, in the uh, airplane business and the air travel business. Well, when people, people said, you love airplanes, I was, uh, when they looked up uh, airplane sucker in the, in the dictionary, they, they put my picture in it. So they, they called me up when uh, an airline was being sold, Capital Airlines, back in December 1983. And they came to see me, and I ended up buying an airline. And uh, that was the time our president was president. And uh, we did very well for a while, uh, but People's Express entered our markets. Yeah, that was they saturated and, industry and the, the and cheap the airlines. Yeah. yeah, People's Express was a fraud. But we did very well for a while. I ended up flying some of those DC-8s, DC-10s. And uh, it, sometimes you've got to do a business because you're enjoying what you're doing. I love the story in there about your Carl Icahn at the time owned TWA. And they were they were using you guys. And he had a big bill. And <laughs> he a, tell us what happened there. He had a oh big, he had a big bill I, and, and he wasn't interested in paying it. <laughs> I called my friend. And you know, and in, 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 in Carl Icahn, TWA was sitting on a billion dollars. Uh, we were also in the airplane leasing business. So they owed us like a million dollars a month in rent. So I go to, I, you know, and he, he stopped, he just stopped paying. I, I found my friend Ed Down. Ed Down, like Down Communications. He was married to Charlotte Ford. Uh, and I said, Ed, Ed, you know, Carl, I want to see him. So I go up to see Carl. I said, please, you know, why aren't you paying us? So he's paying us a million dollars a month. That's what he's supposed to pay us. You ready? You offered me a hundred thousand a month. <laughs> That's a big write-off. And, and I, I turned around, I walked out on him. And and he, Carl Icahn couldn't believe that somebody's walking out on him. <laughs> I walked out, didn't look back. We ended up settling. Uh, he ended up... Uh, uh, paying me up front. Uh, I mean, the lease stream was X amount of money. You ended up paying me up front for the for the leases on the airplanes for the next two, three years. And I did okay, and he did better. <laughs> That's why he's Carl Icahn. Uh, yeah. I thought it was a great story. But generally, you felt the 1980s. I think you're right. This is a great time to do business. You had opportunities everywhere. Why was that? What, how, what do you attribute that to? Obviously, we associate Brilliant. that. With Reagan, but but what did that mean for you as a businessman and entrepreneur? That you had a friendly Washington, uh, you could do uh, you could do things, and and uh, I remember uh, buying Pantry Pride from Ron Perlman, and the, then there was the December 31, 1986 tax law, where if you bought real estate, uh, you can depreciate it over thirteen years. I went to my banker, Bankers Trust, Linda Goodman, and I said to her, it's December 10th. I got to get this deal done by December 31. Well, she got it done. <laughs> got it I, done. Bought, I, I bought all the real estate from Pantry Pride, uh, and uh, uh, I depreciated over 13 years, which was a good tax deal. It gave people the inducement. You know, people, investors need inducement to to take money out of their pocket. And that, that was one one of the things Ronald Reagan created. Let's let's jump forward today, get your your take on, on a policy piece here. Do you think we're doing enough as a country to create that environment for business for opportunity? 
seems to be where we're trying to bring manufacturing back in this country, less reliant and overseas products, um, supply chain, and the like. What do you think would be the the driver to to get the U.S. Uh, creating this this business climate, deal climate, opportunity climate? Well, I think a lot of the business people feel that their Washington is their enemy, or they're the enemy of Washington. And to invest money, uh, I think people are more cautious today than ever. Uh, uh, the other problem is. Uh, I'm in the oil business and the real estate business. Um, they raised, the Fed raised the rates so fast. They put the, ba the banks in, into trouble. And right now, uh, if you walk into a bank and you wanted to get a real estate construction loan, you got three chances, slim and slimmer. <laughs> and 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 what happens is uh the banks are scared for their own existence yeah yeah uh, because the fed has has yelled at them has 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 threatened them even the big banks they are scared for their own existence and you know what the next shoe that's going to fall corporate loans and small business loans they may be renewed but you better be there's 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 no room for error. So all the capital's tightening, tightening, easy money's not there, and that's that that has all the markings of recession, doesn't it, John? It it absolutely does, but it's gonna hurt people. What I said the other day, I was on television the other day on one of the business channels, and what I said is when President Biden uh raised the price of crude oil from fifty-five dollars a barrel and it went up to 125, 120. It took a trillion dollars from North America, moved it to Russia, moved it to the OPEC nations. It made the, the poor people poorer and made the middle class poorer. It gave money to Russia to, to create the war in Ukraine. They would not have had the money, but because oil went up to such a degree it created a lot of income, uh, almost like a billion dollars a day well, yeah, we, we, for we, Russia. It, it's a, the environmental mind here said we don't want to be in the business of, of having oil coming out of the United States. Instead, they relied on countries elsewhere, Russia, you know, the OPEC countries to produce oil for us from, a, from an environmental standpoint. And really no difference. It just meant that, as you said, the wealth transferred outside the U.S., Yes, absolutely. We, the American people got poorer. Everybody else got richer. Let's talk about presidents. You mentioned President Biden. A few more minutes, we'll, we'll discuss about that and then get to some of the lessons from your career. We're with John Katsimidis. How Far Do You Want to Go? His new book, Lessons from a Common Sense Billionaire. You were mentioned earlier, Democrat, then Republican, but you've always been almost nonpartisan or bipartisan. You write that in a number of places in your book in terms of the uh, political support you've given to office holders and candidates. Let's just deal with the presidents. We'll go down the list, the ones I recall you met with. Jimmy Carter, I think, was the first you met. Uh, Jimmy Carter, no, I'm going to tell you one you might not realize. I, didn't, I, I, I came close to him, maybe a foot away. My father took me to Grant's tomb when I was six years old and President Eisenhower was dedicating Grant's tomb. Oh, in New York City up New there. City. 
Yeah. President Eisenhower. Then the next one was President Carter, uh, because I, I was getting involved with the Archdiocese uh, of the United States for the Greek Orthodox Church. Then the first time at the White House was Ronald Reagan, and uh, he was one great president. And I, I remember being online, and I was there with another friend of mine named Farhad, and the protocol officer says, and this is Mr. Katsimatidis, and this is Mr. Farhad, and, and, and Ronald Reagan says, where's all the Jones and Smithers? <laughs> That's a true story. I was there. Well, yeah, you profile uh, Farhad throughout. Interesting stuff there. We won't get into it now, but readers of your book will be interested in uh, Farhad, Ali North, and uh, a, a headsy time in the, in the Reagan White House. Um, now, oh, Reagan you have to use those capital airplanes for something. <laughs> That's exactly. Yeah. Well, they were they were in and out of uh, the Western Hemisphere for sure. Uh, but you also had this great relationship with George H. W. Bush. Tell us he about a, that. He, he was a great president. He knew what he was doing. He was smart. He was he's, he was the CIA director. He was uh, uh, eight years the vice president. So he knew his stuff. He didn't realize on politics. He was uh, he he won his four-year term right after President Reagan, and when President Clinton was running against him, he didn't take it seriously, and then he then he allowed that guy to run a, uh, as a third-party candidate. Ross Perot, yeah. Ross Perot, you know, Ross Perot, all he wanted was a little bit of recognition. Well, Ross Perot, all he wanted to do is help get so many prisoners out of Vietnam. Yep. That was President Bush. And Ross Perot came to me and says, uh, help me. I said, I'll give you the whole sixth fleet. Go over there. <laughs> no, no, don't run against me. Go over there and take care of things. Take care, go get we would have got him would have got him reelected, huh? And, yeah. and not have to have Clinton. But you interesting little uh, not little, but footnote on on George H. W. Bush. It was a bit of a it was conflicting for you because, of course, in 1988, George H.W. Bush ran against Michael Dukakis, and you had the Greek affinity there as well. Tell us about that. Well, I I, I liked George H.W. Bush. Uh, we helped build the uh, uh, the chapel at Camp David with George H.W. Bush, and he's a very a good guy, whatever, and. Um, the archbishop comes to me that day. He says, we're choosing up who's going to support who. I said, okay. He says, we want you, you on the uh, East Coast, we want you to support uh, Mr. Dukakis because he's Greek and Greek Orthodox. And uh, Mr. Tsakopoulos is going uh, is gonna, to, on the West Coast, is going to support uh, Mr. Dukakis also. Uh, you know, you know what you say to the archbishop when you're a young guy. I don't know. Yes. I've never been in this situation. You say yes, your eminence. <laughs> and uh, uh, so we we helped. Uh, our office raised a lot of money for mostly Greek money uh, for uh, Dukakis. A lot of the people were very proud that he was Greek. Had nothing to do with politics. It's like. Uh, uh, I guess it was like the early days when if a black person was running, 96% of the black people will vote for him. 
but it seems to be a theme throughout your story as, as presented in your book. I mean, never really looked at candidates exclusively through a partisan lens. I mean, through today, you, you, you approach it through relationships and uh, your connections and, and mutual interest than it is about party affiliation. Is, is that part of the lesson you want to convey in your story here? Well, I think the, that when you're a businessman, you got to run your business and that takes priority. So, you know, uh, what was our motto at, uh, or would have been our motto at West Point? Uh, country, uh, I forget, my God, how could I forget? Uh, there, there's three words, uh, the motto at West Point or Air Force Academy. And the same thing, when you're a businessman, you got to worry about your family, you got to worry about your company, and you got to worry about your country. Right. So business people have to be bipartisan because you got to worry about your company. I, you know, if you have 8,000 employees, if you want to play a game with politics, who's going to get hurt? Your 8,000 employees that expect a paycheck from you every Friday. Well, it seems to test you, though. So we'll get to another president, uh, Bill Clinton, that they were calling, the White House was calling, and you write in the book, uh, first time, said no, he didn't respond, second time, third time, fourth time, you're like, I guess we have to go as the President of the United States. Uh, great story there about your wife, who observed that the Clinton White House at the time didn't have American flags or wasn't, weren't as, as kind of numerous as they were when you had visited the, the Reagan White House. Tell us about that story. Well, there wasn't a, in the room that we uh, were in for dinner uh, was, um, I forget which room, uh, there weren't any flags. And my wife also, we walked in to have dinner. It was only 40 people at dinner. I was sitting next to Hillary. Uh, Margo was sitting next to Bill Clinton. And I said to her, Don't, you know, my, my wife is from Indiana. She's right of Attila the Hun. Well, Margo. And I said, don't say anything nasty. Don't say anything. <laughs> so the only thing my wife uh, said uh, is, "You were at Fordham University uh, last month, and there were you were the president of the United States, and there was no flags." Mm. And then and then she says, "There's no flags in this room," and he took it to heart. We were the last ones there. It was midnight. I would have to, me and Hillary walked behind the president and Margot because he was going to take, he took us into the, the Oval. Oval Office to see all the flags in the Oval Office and how much he really cared about our flags. Great story. Enjoyed that one. Um, let's fast forward a bit as we wrap up our conversation. So being around elected officials, you shared how a business person and a business owner needs to approach elected officials. But then you ran for office in 2013 in your city, New York City. Reflect upon that race and more broadly about the state of New York City and its political leadership. Well, I ran, it's the first time I ran, uh, even though I can consider myself a Ronald Reagan a Republican and a Bill Clinton Democrat. Uh, and uh, my daughter uh, married uh, President Nixon's uh, grandson. Uh, grandson. And Christopher, a great kid, 
He's a good kid. I still talk. I still think he's a great kid. Uh, and um, uh, the fact is uh, that uh, I could not get the Democratic nomination. So I did what what John Lindsay did, what uh, Rudolph uh, Giuliani did, and, and a few others. I ran as a Republican liberal. In other words, I, I'm a fiscal responsibility and safety liberal as far as worried about the the children of the inner city in education. And don't forget, I was working for Mr. Morgenthau, the Police Athletic League, and I worked for him for 40 years. I still mm -hmm. now I'm chairman. And I worried about the kids of the inner city. So I, I, could, I was a liberal as far as worrying about our kids in the inner city. But I was a Republican as far as physical responsibility and safety in our streets. And that's and that was the the formula. But tough tough road to climb. Well, Rudy Giuliani. I was running in a primary against uh, uh, Rudy uh, uh, Rudy's deputy mayor, and Rudy supported his deputy mayor Joe Loda, who was a nice guy. And the truth is, I never said anything bad about Joe Loda. He's a very capable person, but I thought I was better. <laughs> um, what about New York City today? How are you feeling about the state of your of your city? We're in deep crap. 484,000 uh, people in the last 12 months have moved away. The impact is as much as $50 billion on the budget. Uh, the, the, the sales tax revenues in the month of April, the budget was $17 billion. Uh, they only took in uh, 10 billion. Uh, so I don't know why all these people are up in Albany raising budgets, raising taxes. They keep raising and raising and raising. The money's not going to be there. So what, I. What would I, be the first thing you would do? Sounds like the first thing you do if you were in charge is there'd be some tax relief here to try to drive revenues up instead of kind of picking at the same well. I was in charge. I'd solve the problem in 90 days. You know why? You know why people are leaving? They're, they're, they're scared. They don't want to ride the subways. They don't want to ride the buses. They can't go out to dinner at night because they're afraid somebody's going to whack them over the head when they went to the restaurant. So... Law and order. We have a law and order mayor, right? We, we this is a this is a a friend of the police. Democrats or Republicans, common sense Democrats, common sense Republicans, all want law and order. And I use Ronald Reagan's name very, very often. I said Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill didn't necessarily like each other, but they both worked hard for what's best for America. I said that Bill Clinton and Newt Gingrich didn't like each other. They worked very, very hard for America. And I, and, and I commended President Biden because they changed chief of staffs. Right. And they made a deal with- uh, On the debt ceiling deal Kevin, with Kevin McCarthy. Yeah, Kevin McCarthy. And I said, maybe they'll go down in history on the same way as Reagan and, and uh, O'Neill. And I said, common sense has to prevail. We have to sit together and come out working together for what's best of America. Extremism, Goldwater was wrong. Extremism, extreme left or extreme right is not right. We should work, everybody should work together for a great America. 
So at the end of your book, everybody should take a look. There's the council, 16 points that you put in there. Page Love 255. It. There we go. The favorite, good, good one to start. You can't win if you're not afraid of losing, which is, you hear that a lot from entrepreneurs, Ronald right? Reagan, Ronald Reagan was just like that. <laughs> you know, he told Mr. Gorbachev off. Yeah, it, it certainly did. And then another one stuck out to me. People do what you inspect not what you expect that that struck me i like that one well, people do what you inspect correct you're right if people don't know that you're going to check them out they'll do whatever they want you they have to be afraid that you're going to check it out so I, I, you, you did have all your stores and all your employees always checking in huh well they, they're always afraid i'm going to be checking <laughs> own the real estate that's that's good if you can Absolutely, because if if you if you have short leases on your uh, uh, on your retail businesses, and you don't own the real estate, guess what? You yes, lose. Let's... You lose. Seek allies in unexpected places and dream up mutually beneficial ideas. That was an interesting one. What's your best story associated with a, an ally in an unexpected place? Oh my God! I would say. Uh, uh, when, uh, you, you know, that's a hard one. I would have to think about that. All right. Well, we'll that's have you back good. on the show. Well, I'm going to hold you. I'm going to hold you to that one. I like it. I look it. forward to it. I love the good one. Last one. And then we'll wrap up with a round. Help others at every opportunity. This is number 14. You'll benefit as much as they do. So it's a, a good maxim in terms of principle to live with, but there's also a little, uh, benefit, you know, self-interest perhaps in doing so, help others at every opportunity. Has that been a key for you in, in, in your business? I always try to help people because there's so many people that need help. And to you, to people, it means nothing. <laughs> it means nickels and dimes. But to them, it's all the money in the world. We're going to close out our conversation with our lightning round. Give us your favorite Reagan book, Reagan speech, Reagan quote, or anything you want to say in terms of your memory or interaction with Ronald Reagan. What do you have for us? Oh, my God. What I love is uh, well, Ronald Reagan is uh, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall. Uh, that's, that's the winner. We'll take that one. Well, we're going to we've applied your 16th word of counsel, which was have fun. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. We look forward to having you back. Well, looking forward to meeting you in person and uh, God bless you and God bless America. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend.